You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, people out there in the world. This is Common Descent, episode 87. 87. And this time we are discussing ceratopsians. A dinosaur. The horned dinosaurs, your triceratopses, your styracosauruses, your animals with the big crazy frills and the horns and the stuff like that. Yeah, the shield-headed dinosaurs. Very cool, interesting group of dinosaurs. They are pretty awesome. Like It's, it's hard to argue against how cool they are. <laughs> and it's about time we got back to dinosaurs. We've done birds and spinosaurs and ankylosaurs. Now we're on the big horned fellas. In this episode, we're going to talk about what makes them unique. We'll talk about a bit of what we know about their lifestyles and our arguments over what exactly they were doing with their wacky heads. Because there's a lot of discussion there. And we will go through the fascinating and perhaps surprising evolution of the group. <laughs> they have a long and, and, and interesting history. That's, yeah, not what I think most people would expect from it. Oh boy, oh boy. This episode was also requested by a number of people, our patron Nick, as well as Jonathan, Greta, Brett, and Bert the Squirrel. <gasps> Thanks, Bert the Squirrel, and everyone else. Via our patron Cheryl. So this is the first podcast episode of the Common Sense Podcast that was requested by a rodent. <laughs> so put that up on the list. Now, before we get into the episode, it's going to be a lot of fun, but we have a few announcements. Number one, as usual, we have a Patreon. So people who support us on Patreon are helping to contribute to the continuation of the podcast. Yeah, the, the existence of the podcast. Yep. <laughs> and if you patronize us at a certain level, we will say your name in gratitude on the podcast. Here are a few from very recently. <laughs> Paul, Robert, Alicia, Benjamin, Jeremy, Nancy, and Kirill. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much. But you guys are making these episodes longer and longer. <laughs> as the, as the well, eventually, we're going to have to do what some other podcasts have done and put the list at the end of the episode. Yeah. And it's just the last five minutes of the episode is us reading names. But seriously, thank you. This is it's The generosity has been amazing. And while we're thanking patrons, a special thanks to our patron, Matthew, who sent us a present recently. Yes. Some mixers yeah some, some audio equipment audio equipment which at the moment we cannot use it, incompatible with the, the <laughs> things we're using but we have plans for the future so we will be putting them to use one way or another absolutely so thank you so much for that a couple of other notes on we've been doing a lot of extra stuff in this the time of the great pandemic to keep ourselves busy keep give you some stuff to listen to and to do we have been doing Netflix party viewings of movies. Which has been a lot of fun. Lots of fun. We are going to be taking a break from that for the time being, so you won't be seeing those coming up in the near future. Yeah, we kind of exhausted the, the really ideal stuff on Netflix, and we don't want to just start forcing it by picking random stuff. And our extra time is now being taken up by a new thing we're doing which we're calling Live Chat. Yes. We have already, by the time this comes out, we will have done two. One with our friend Leah about ancient DNA, and one with our friend Steve about turtles. These are live-streamed conversations on YouTube. They are Q&As, so you can send us questions ahead of time on social media, and then you can join the live chat and ask questions 
right there as we're having the conversation. And the audio will come to the podcast afterward, but come and join us and ask us and our guest questions. It's tons of fun to have people interacting in the chat. If you've missed the ones so far, they are up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And the audio, as you said, will be released through via the podcast, so you'll see it in your list. The next one coming up is our friend Laura coming back to talk more about paleopathologies. And one more new thing, we've said this already, but we have awesome new art thanks to our artist friend Rob Soto. Yes. And it means awesome new merch. So check out our Zazzle store if you want a cool shirt with our really just phenomenal new stuff. I'm so happy with the new art, and it was it's been tons of fun uh, getting to see Rob design it, so getting to actually reveal it is exciting and very fulfilling. Yeah, and we, we're going to have uh, some of that stuff coming to us pretty soon, because we need some of it. Yep. One other thing, speaking of the special stuff that we have been doing, we did a Silver Screen Science a little while back about the movie Evolution, and in that discussion, I made a comment, I think it was me, that to the effect of vaccines being a thing for viruses, and the movie talks about bacterial vaccines, and I, I made a comment about the science of it. That's not how it works. And a couple of our listeners have reached out and sent us messages to correct me. That is how it works. It is how, yeah, no, there are bacterial <laughs> vaccines, which I did not realize. No, I, I was on board with you when you made that comment. I was like, yeah, no, vaccine, virus, that's even, common knowledge. Even though some of them are like, really, like tuberculosis and tetanus are bacterial things yeah. that you can get vaccines for. So I meant to say this like four recordings of stuff ago, and I kept forgetting. <laughs> so thanks to the people who reached out and corrected us on our medical knowledge. Yes. That's why we don't do a medical podcast. If anyone ever catches anything like that, please let us know, because we are willing to adjust our facts. We don't know everything. Absolutely. <laughs> we are always learning. Yes. All that being said, we are ready to move on to section two of the podcast episode, which is, as always, the news. The news, section B. Every episode, we talk about some news from the world of paleontology, things that have caught our eye that we think you might be interested in. Will, do you have anything fun today? I have Tully monsters. Okay, like in the Muppets. Yes. Okay. It's uh, my favorite Muppet. A fossil ancestor <laughs> yes. of the Muppets. This is this is uh, the evolutionary history that leads to Gonzo, I believe. Oh, um, I always wondered. The, yeah, no. Uh, and as confirmed, he's an alien, so that fits with the Tully monster. Anyone who doesn't know the Tully monster, <laughs> that is this extremely bizarre creature from 300 million years ago that has these stalk eyes, like hammerhead sharks sticking off the side of its body, a little torpedo-shaped body. Uh, not little, it's like bowling pin-sized. Oh, uh, yeah, not too little. Yeah, so not itty-bitty, but I mean, you know, moderate-sized. And then uh, an arm on the front with a little claw mouth. Yeah, it's reminiscent of, like, Anomalocarids, yeah. Opabinia-type stuff from back in the Cambrian. Yes. But the issue with it is that people have not really been able to agree on what it is. As in, what group does it belong to? Is it an invert? Is it a fish? Is it one of those more ancient groups? Uh, like, what it is has been argued about. This new study presents evidence that at least categorizes it into one of the major groups. So let's talk about it. This is research by Victoria McCoy et al. in Geobiology. 
And the article we'll be sharing is by Laura Gagel in Live Science. So the Tully monster, as we were saying, is a weird creature. And they described it as a Rorschach test in the fossil record. <laughs> that It seems like almost everyone who looks at it has a different opinion. Some of the the things people have suggested it might have been or been related to, uh, they had a list, which was fun. They said it, whether it was vertebrate or invertebrate, uh, which is what this paper touches on. But also it's been suggested that it was a shellless snail of some sort, a type of worm, a jawless fish, or even an arthropod. So <laughs> all over the tree. Yeah, so almost all of animal life. <laughs> Everyone has staked a claim to the telemonster. And we've known about this since uh, just before the 60s, 1958. So it's not like it's a new creature that we're still arguing about. We've been arguing about for a while. And this study brings a new bit of evidence that may place it within one of those groups. So they decided to take a chemical approach because all of those, all of the arguments for the most part are the main discussions were looking at the anatomy. And it just wasn't giving a clear answer. So they said, all right, the anatomy just may not be the way to go. Let's look at the chemicals. So they analyzed chemical residues left on the fossilized remains to try to figure out what those tissues were made of. What were the building blocks of those tissues? Okay, interesting. Because what those building blocks are should categorize it at least into invertebrate or vertebrate. Because we use very fundamentally different building blocks between us, the backboned, who use things like keratin to build up our hair and our fingernails and things like that. Or in the inverts, where they use, for their tough part, chitin, which is what makes up an arthropod, an insect, or crustacean shell. Right, right. To, to, quote, uh, to quote an internet personality, chitin is what an ant is made of. Yes. <laughs> How many chitins <laughs> is a tully monster... <laughs> made of or not made of. Yes. Is what they're trying to figure out. So they used in situ Raman microspectroscopy. Chemical analysis. Chemical analysis. They're looking at the spectrums the different materials give off when they are shot with a laser. Now, this test cannot identify the specific compounds necessarily because that's very difficult. But if they can identify the classes of compounds present, that should give them invertebrate or vertebrate based on what things we see in invertebrates and vertebrates. So like they may not be able to say it had this protein, but they could say it's using these compounds and we don't see that in keratin. So it shouldn't, it sh we shouldn't be looking at a vertebrate. Right. We're looking for chemical traces. Chemical traces. Suggest what might have been there. To give us a group of chemical compounds to give us an origin of the proteins being used to build this creature. Makes sense. So that's what they were looking at, and what they found, well, and how they did that is they compared the remnants of three Tully monsters and 17 other ancient animals, looking at 32 different spots on those fossils. So compared it to uh, other fossils from the Maison Creek formation, which is where the Tully monster fossils came from as well. Very famous fossil locality. And what they found is that the proteins they were able to identify the residues of, none of them seem to make up chitin. None of them seem to be in the chitin category. So perhaps not an invertebrate. Seems to not be invertebrate, which suggests that the Tully monster was grouped within the vertebrates, within our group. Interesting. Alongside 
fish and lampreys yeah. and, you know, the, the things that we are familiar with. And this actually lines up with research by the same group that suggested Tully Monster was in the same lineage as Jawless Fish, uh, which include, like, the lamprey today. Mm-hmm. And so... And hagfish. And hagfish. Yeah. So, yeah. The Tully Monster is such a fun fossil organism. Because it's one of those, it, it, it's got the perfect combination of looking real weird. Yeah. It's so weird looking. And being a legitimate source of scientific dis- discussion and debate. Mm-hmm. And also having a bit of that hometown pride. So Mason Creek is in Illinois. I don't remember yes. if you said that. But no, no. Illinois. I and people from Illinois know the Tully Monster. <laughs> like it's, it's a thing that... That state is kind of... I think it's the state fossil, the, the Tully Monster. It should be, if it's not. But it's an either invertebrate or very strange early vertebrate, mm-hmm. which usually don't get that kind of attention. And so it's kind of cool to see it... I'm sure that there are invertebrate paleontologists out there who think of the Tully Monster the way that vertebrate paleontologists think about T-Rex. Yeah. Like, oh, it's in the news again, and everybody's yeah, yeah. talking about it. But that's so cool to see from a weird unclassifiable organism it's always fun when it comes up and it's got a cool name and if it is in fact a vertebrate or vertebrate relative it is one of the strangest members of our group yep because you shouldn't have a stock mouth no that's yeah your proboscis doesn't need an elbow to it it's they're super bizarre now this is not the final word uh even the even the article worded it that way. The Raman spectroscopy is very complex and there could be issues with it. It can it is not necessarily the most precise of techniques, so there could be revisit there. But it does seem to be pretty good. Our friend Steve actually commented, was interviewed for this article, for the news article. Steve from the live chat about turtles. Yeah. And said that they could have been helped by having a few more fossil specimens to compare it to. So widen that sample size. But overall, that the results do seem pretty good. And it is a pretty strong indicator or at least suggestive of it being a vertebrate. So there are rooms that there's room to improve. And we may hear more about this. I'm sure people will want to respond oh, yeah. to Tully Monster News. But well, we will talk about... Tully Monster more in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. Well, speaking of weird animals that defy classification... That may or may not be vertebrates? No, not quite. (laughs) We're we're pretty sure the skull is a dead giveaway. This, my first bit of news, is about a mammal. A super weird mammal that represents a super weird group of mammals that we've never had a good look at until now. This is research by David Krause et al. in Nature, and we will link to an article in Washington Post by Ben Guarino. Let me take you back to the Mesozoic. There is a group, there's lots of mammals in the Mesozoic, of various groups. Some of them are the ancestors or direct relatives of groups that we still have today, like marsupials and monotremes. But then there are some that don't exist today anymore at all. Yeah. One of those groups is called the Gondwanatherians. This is a group of mammals that are known from the Mesozoic and then a little later from Gondwana, the southern continents. They are famous 
for how little we know about them. <laughs> they had they're, they're known only from fragments of skull and jaw, some teeth. I think one skull is known, and they have like the Tully monster, although to a lesser extent, bounced around the mammal tree a bit. At one point, they were thought that maybe they were relatives of Xenarthrans, mm-hmm. so armadillos, sloths, and such. Nowadays, they are generally thought to be a wholly separate group of mammals that we know next to nothing about. Until now, this new research reports on not just the best skull material of a Gondwanathir, not just the first post-crania, which is everything behind the cranium, the rest of the body, the first ever-reported post-cranial material for a Gondwanathir, but a complete skeleton. Well, all right then. We went from skull fragments to a complete skeleton of this group of animals, and boy is it strange. It comes from Madagascar in the latest Cretaceous. It was actually excavated back in 1999 and has been sort of slowly going through preparation and research and all that. Because it lived in late Cretaceous Madagascar, it lived alongside all those things we discussed back in episode 40, like Cymosuchus, Beelzebufo, the devil frog, uh, dinosaurs like Majungasaurus. The animal has been named Adolatherium huai, and it is unusual for several reasons. One of them is that it is a mammal. Yes. There is a statistic in, I think it was the paper, that said that out of the hundreds and hundreds of fossil specimens that have been found from this region, something like 12 of them are mammals. Very rare group of animals to find at this fossil locality. Number two, it's enormous. Oh. Most mammals from the Mesozoic are little. Like, 100 grams is the number that was cited. You know, we're talking rodent size, like little, little tiny animals. Yes. Adolatherium is estimated at around 3 kilograms. Hmm. The size of a possum or a groundhog. All right. Which, for a Mesozoic mammal, is... Enormous. Yeah, I mean, like, groundhogs are decently sized rodents. Yeah, that's a bit... Three kilograms is like a cat. Yeah, like, this, that's... Not a big cat, but a cat. Yeah, you're getting up to <laughs> notably sized animals, not not little things you wouldn't notice running around. Yeah, no, you're going to trip over this animal. <laughs> its upper incisors were ever-growing, like rodent incisors. Cool. Its front limbs were held close together... Sort of, uh, the, the, one of the, I think the article related it to like a cat will oh. hold its arms yeah. next to each other, but its back legs look like they splayed out to the sides. Its spinal structure suggests it had strong back muscles, and there was even the suggestion that it may have walked back and forth kind of like a lizard does. <laughs> and its skull has a bunch of features that no other mammals have, including a little hole, a little foramen a passage for blood vessels or nerves, above the nose that has never been seen before in any animals. Huh. So it's just this bizarre... It's bizarre for Mesozoic mammals. It's bizarre for mammals. And it is our first window into what Gondwana theories may have been like. Yeah. That's always fun. I I love these discoveries because you have the the double edge of... We finally have material for this group we've been waiting for material from. So now we finally have a window into them. 
but it's super weird. So now we have to be careful because what if this is a, just a weird one? I'm so happy you said that because <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention, Will, is something that you, I, I think, will enjoy as much as I did. In the paper, the authors make a point that they found it on an island. Yes, that's. I was going to say, <laughs> this is Madagascar. It's Madagascar. Which isn't known for playing by the rules. <laughs> and we've discussed, I mean, we, we discussed this last episode yeah. with New Zealand. Evolution gets weird on islands. So they suggest that it's strange features, and particularly its large size. Mm-hmm might potentially be because it was an island animal evolving in isolation and in, a, in an unusual environment. In which case, and I don't think I don't know if they said this, but it certainly made me think it, that might mean that this isn't a good representation no. of Gunwaters <laughs> in the same way that the MOA is not a good example of a bird. Yeah, no, it's like if, you, if I gave you just the cockapo and it's like, here, this is a parrot. This is what parrots are. This is a parrot. Uh, you'd be like, wow, parrots are huge, and it's weird they can't fly. Yeah. Island creatures are always so strange because, on one hand, you could get effectively the same animal. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, like, undifferentiated from its mainland cousin. And then on the flip side, you could get something that is so strange, it's surprising when you find out what it's in the same group with. So it's... I love fossil discoveries because you have... The excitement of we finally have something from this group, but wait, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> put the brake on a little bit because it's real weird. So maybe it's just weird or so, maybe they're just weird. I don't know. So we will see what more we learn about this very strange and mysterious group of animals in the future. Yeah, it's going to turn out all the other Gondonathiers were like, yeah, no, that one is really weird. You're yeah, right. We all just look like shrews. Yes. That's it. That's it. <laughs> we're like echidna shrews. <laughs> Now, my next one is not about a weird animal, but it is about a very popular one that may have gotten some concepts overemphasized or more publicized than maybe they should have been. Okay. This article is about Deinonychus. <gasps> the best dinosaur. It's one of the coolest dinosaurs, and even if you don't recognize the name right away, you'll probably still agree with me when I tell you it's the dinosaur that the, the Jurassic Park Velociraptors were based on yes so this is one of your dromaeosaurs the raptors the sickle claws on the foot this was a decently sized one like wolf size yeah like this wasn't one of the small you know turkey size this was a this would have been a scary predator and also i do just want to make the point that i said the best dinosaur and then will followed up and said this was one of the coolest dinosaurs and i i said what i meant <laughs> yes <laughs> sir i knew what you meant <laughs> Deinonychus was the snakes of dinosaurs <laughs> i don't disagree uh in that it is definitely at least the second best <laughs> go on with your news no Deinonychus is super cool and this article is about the development of of this dinosaur, how it may have grown, which may have indications on its lifestyle. Okay. Ontogeny. Ontogeny, exactly. 33. So this research is by Joseph Fredrickson et al. in paleogeography, paleoclimatology, and paleoecology. P3. P3. We call it P3. In the, in the biz, we call that journal P3 because and you, of all this old And you see why. <laughs> and the article we're linking to is by Natalie Johnson uh, in the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh Today. 
this analysis is on the teeth of Deinonychus. So looking at chemical analysis of those teeth to try to figure out what their diet may have been like throughout its life. So just for some background, Deinonychus anteropus is a Cretaceous predator from 150 to 108 million years ago, North American, and they were wanting to look at how their their diet shifted specifically as they grew, and they're using teeth because, as we've discussed in other you know newses and articles and episodes, the chemicals in the teeth often indicate what kind of diet an animal is having, at least to an extent. Right. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. A bit. And a lot of it gets preserved in the tooth, and teeth preserve particularly well, so it makes it a really good indicator for diet shifts and diet habits and general stuff like that. Now, the reason they're wanting to look at this is that it may indicate certain aspects of, like, parental care. Because, for instance, if we see consistent chemical signatures throughout the animal's life, that means that it was eating basically the same thing from young age to adult age. Okay. Which can often be a suggestion of you're being fed uh, by parents. And the opposite of that situation being you're eating different stuff, which we often see in things where the young are hunting on their own. Right, right. So if you think this is an animal, Deinonychus, that experiences the same basic growth difference from baby to adult as like a caiman. Yep. And caimans eat very different things at different ages. And a big part of that is because mom's not feeding the baby caiman. They are hunting on their own and they can't hunt the big stuff. Also, they shouldn't because they'll get eaten by the adults when they go to compete with the adults, (laughs) which is another thing they point out that a big reason you see that those shifts in diet in certain animals is because the babies are avoiding the adults. Which means if you're, uh, they cited Komodo dragons. Baby Komodo dragons eat very different things because they spend most of their time in the trees. Yes, where the adults aren't. Where the adults aren't, and their normal food as an adult isn't. Yes. So you see them with very different diets. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of lifestyle might we be seeing by the diet shift. So they looked at the isotopes, the carbon and oxygen isotopes in the teeth, a goniofolided crocodiliform, so croc cousin. Uh, that was allowed during time. Very similar to what you think of today's crocs, just a different group with weird features. Cool weird features. And an herbivorous dinosaur, Tenontosaurus, from the same area. So all of these from the same general formation, general fossil area. And we're looking at all of their teeth to see what patterns we see. And they found something interesting. The croc had the same pattern as today's crocs. We see very different isotope signatures from the younger, the smaller teeth, to the bigger teeth. Different diet as they grew. Yes. The herbivore, Tenontosaurus, shows undifferentiated isotope signatures. Same food throughout its It's eating the same stuff the whole time. Which makes sense for an herbivore. And there's also evidence of them being group animals, so they're not competing for that food, they're moving together for that food. Deinonychus matches more the croc than the herbivore. Uh, So maybe the little ones are eating different foods. Yes. So it seems that they are not eating the same thing as the adults, which could have suggestions about their lifestyle. It may mean that they're having to hunt on their own, so they're not being fed. Mm-hmm. And the authors have suggested may indicate against pack hunting, which right, is something right, right. famous among dromaeosaurs that 
is perpetuated in the media that they were pack hunters like wolves. And there's actually not a lot of evidence for that. No, uh, there's not. The initial evidence for that really just came from a, a couple of bits of uh, fossil evidence and suggested by a few notable people and has gained a lot of traction and popularity. But really, there's not much solid uh, proof or evidence or research that indicates they're pack hunters. And this could potentially indicate against it. And it's interesting because a lot of the time when we're looking at evidence of pack hunting, there are spaces where you find lots of teeth Mm -hmm. or remains that suggest multiples in a spot or footprints that suggest maybe you had them roaming together. But there is also a difference between family groups sticking together and like what we'll see with uh, some animals today where you'll have multiples of juveniles will hang out and, and go hunting versus multiples of adults. This is interesting because it seems to potentially suggest if the young are out hunting on their own, that at the very least, the young and the adults are not hanging out together. Yes. Which is an interesting thing to, to learn about them. They also point out that we could, some of that evidence could also be answered by non-pack hunting behavior, but just group feeding, right, right. like Komodo dragons and crocodiles. Yeah. Who will, here is a food we're all going to, we're not cooperating. No, we're not working together. We're tolerating each other. Like, we're not a pack. We just all want the food and we're not attacking one another as we eat it. Yes, mostly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you watch, uh, you know, they'll, they'll call them feeding frenzies. But when crocodiles go after food, for the most part, they're actually very cordial. They know the bigger ones go first, the smaller ones go last. And they will even take turns pulling chunks off, but they didn't help kill the animal together. No. And then when it's done, they all go their separate ways. Yes. So there are ways we could get seemingly group behavior evidence without them being super-duper social wolf pack hunters. Yeah. I know that the, the media spin on this has been... I, I say a spin. The, the focus that a lot mm-hmm. of the headlines have run with is the pack thing. But what's interesting to me about that is the idea of limited parental care. Yes. Which is... of it, Animals like this, it is always a toss-up because... The two groups living that we know a lot about that are the most tempting because of relationships to compare them to mm-hmm. are birds and crocs. Yep. And those are both really cool options. Yes. And so whenever I hear it's like, oh, they probably didn't live in groups and take care of their babies. They probably lived like crocodiles. And I go, well, okay, on the one hand, that's kind of disappointing. But on the other hand, crocodiles. Yes. So, yeah, it's a cool thing to know. They also did point out that using those comparisons, we don't see pack behavior in either of those groups either. Like That's true. Minus, <laughs> is it the Harris hawk? So I, there is a... I think it's the Harris. Uh, yeah. That is like the one that we see using pack hunting behavior. Uh, but yeah, so like, and I could picture a mom Deinonychus guarding babies, but not feeding babies right well like snakes like yeah rattlesnakes do that they will guard their babies for a while and then they go their separate ways yeah right mom alligators will take care of the baby for a bit but then okay i have to go eat and you have to go live your life before i think of you as food yeah <laughs> so and there's, let's go. there's always complications there's been viewings of mother crocodiles holding pieces of meat for their babies in captivity so like <laughs> but yeah weird behavior well, speaking of dinosaurs, if Deinonychus is, as I've asserted, 
the snakes of the dinosaur world. Yeah. Then this next animal I'm going to talk about is almost literally yes. <laughs> the crocodiles of the dinosaur world. Uh, we're talking about Spinosaurus. Now, Spinosaurus, remind me. Spinosaurus is a dinosaur that, so it's a meat eater. Uh-huh. Big, two-legged asterisk with uh, the, the, sort of a T-Rex allosaurus shape, mm-hmm. but then the face is long like a crocodile, and on the back it's got this big spine. I'm pretty sure I've heard of a it. A big sail. Would I know it from anywhere? I think it was in a movie. Yeah. One of the, uh, some dinosaur movies. Yeah, okay. But anyway, <laughs> Spinosaurus has been big in, in, in the popular I, it, it's been featured in lots of popular media. We did an episode about it, episode mm-hmm. 42, it and its relatives, the Spinosaurids. But the thing that the dinosaur group Spinosaurus has been most scientifically famous for is that people have a habit of disagreeing over what exactly it did. Yes. Specifically in regards to its purported aquatic habits. Original reconstructions of Spinosaurus saw it as very much like other theropod dinosaurs, and then as evidence came out throughout the years of its strange body proportions and its habit of spending time near water and other spinosaurids eating fish, there was some research not too long ago that we've talked about that found evidence of increased bone density mm-hmm. like you would expect to see in a aqua- semi-aquatic animals. Yeah, like most of your marine mammals. Its face is like a crocodile. Like, there's a lot of reason to think Spinosaurus might have been spending a good amount of time in or near water. Yes. Well, this new research, a big new thing, if you follow uh, dinosaur research online, the news and stuff. Or have friends who do. <laughs> you've seen it, I'm sure. <laughs> discovered a piece of Spinosaurus that I didn't know, we didn't know about before this. Apparently, of all of the the things we've been able to study about Spinosaurus, which is often incomplete regardless, we've never seen a Spinosaurus tail before. Yep, I didn't know that either. Only incomplete, like, bits and pieces of tail. Well, this new research from Nazar Ibrahim et al. in Nature, and we will link to an article by Michael Greshko in National Geographic, found a tail. Specifically, this is a tale uh, from the Kemkem beds of Morocco, so we are 95 to 100 million years old, a little bit later than Deinonychus, but over in Africa. Excavated in 2018, the tale seems to match up with the more complete skeleton that they've been publishing more recent studies Mm -hmm, on, mm -hmm. uh, which has been designated the Neotype, since the original holotype was bombed to oblivion. (sighs) The tale is nearly complete, Partially articulated, which means bones still in life-associated position. Which is always cool. They identified more than 30 vertebrae, (sighs) accounting for about 80% of the tail's total length. That's ridiculous for dinosaur stuff. So, like, an actually really good tail of Spinosaurus. Now, think back to Jurassic Park 3. They gave Spinosaurus that long, typical theropod tail. Yeah, mostly roundish. Yes. This discovery shows that the vertebrae in the Spinosaurus tail had struts sticking off the top and bottom of it, in some cases almost two feet long, (laughs) so that when they reconstruct the whole skeleton, not only does it have that big sail on its back, it's got these struts sticking off the tail as well, so that it looks like the sail, the sort of tall shape, continues through the tail. This means that the tail, overall, has a very 
sideways, flattened shape. Yep. And indeed, they also point out that they it looks like the connections between the vertebrae are lessened in parts of the tail than in other dinosaurs, suggesting that it had more flexibility. More mobile tail. All in all, it looks like a crocodile tail. <laughs> yeah. Or like a sea snake or any animal that you, you picture swimming in the water side to side swimming. That flattened shape, that what we would call laterally compressed. Yeah, like the the outlines that they showed in the picture, if you took the body of an eel, like a moray eel, yeah, yeah. it has that long, continuous, flat shape. Now, this is, we'll talk a bit more in a second, astonishingly good evidence for Spinosaurus possibly being aquatic. It, it now is uh, much harder to just go, well, uh, we're not sure. Like, this is <laughs> another big chunk to the pile of evidence of aquatic adaptations. Yes. like It has a croc-like. They also compare it to newts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dors- uh, laterally compressed tail, good for swishing back and forth, which is great for moving in the water. That's super cool. That's such a cool discovery. That's a, It's such a weird dinosaur. Yes. Now, the next part of their study, and the next the, the thing that has been stressed in news releases about it, is the question of exactly what they were doing with that tail. The researchers were curious to know how much power was in this tail. Yeah, it, 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 would this actually act as a motor? Was this a propulsion tail? And so what they did was they made a little robot tail that would flap in the water, and then they did some measurements on the biomechanics... And they found that it is producing more thrust than a typical dinosaur tail, mm-hmm. which is not remotely surprising. It's, it's uh, when you're using a paddle versus a stick. <laughs> but not quite as good as crocodilians or newts. Again, they compared it to certain newts. And from there, they say, oh, maybe it's using its tail to help swim. And then from there, there is some comments and some news articles and some pictures that suggests Spinosaurus was this very, like, shark-like aquatic predator pushing itself along with yeah, its like tail. Yeah, like a dino otter. Hunt, yeah, <laughs> like a mosasaur. Mm-hmm. That part has been rather roundly criticized. Yes. Uh, there has been a lot of comments about, A, that the biomechanics are a little bit iffy, that people would like to rerun those tests. B, that the struts coming off the tail are actually very thin and delicate, and so might not have been providing a lot of strength in the tail. Yeah, I mean, maybe you couldn't have been as forceful with them. And also see that Spinosaurus is huge. <laughs> like you, you need a lot of thrust to push yeah. an animal that is T-Rex-sized through the water. So a lot of people have been suggesting that the tail may more have been as you're moving around slowly, the tail is kind of helping with efficiency mm-hmm. or streamlining your motion or maybe for steering or angling or yeah. something. That it might be more for travel than pursuit. Right. Which, for what it's worth, I think makes a lot more sense. Oh, yeah. That's like, completely reasonable. The idea of Spinosaurus as this like slow stalker through the water... Uh, I, I've seen it compared to herons and storks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, crocodiles aren't a bad comparison. Yeah. You're sitting around waiting for stuff, maybe looking slowly. But all in all, in one form or another, it does appear to have the tail 
of an animal spending lots of time in water, in addition to having a bunch of other stuff. A bunch of other stuff <laughs> that is suitable for water. Yeah. It's it's a super cool find. Like, bottom line. Oh my gosh, this is such a cool finding. What a weird animal. <laughs> it's so weird and cool. It's such a cool, weird animal. It's it's as a kid, I was not big on Spinosaurus because it killed T-Rex <laughs> back in that movie. <laughs> well, and it's just a dinosaur with a sail on its back. Yeah. And as time has gone on, its weirdness factor has increased. And I love weird. It keeps getting better. <laughs> weird fossil animals are always higher. So I it keeps climbing the ranks for me. But and now it could star in a movie alongside T-Rex and pose a very different threat. Yes, exactly. It's like, all right, we escaped T-Rex by going on this boat out into the lake. Yep. Like, all right, now you're in trouble. Now it's it can be the, uh, it's a new environmental hazard. Yes. But in response to like the propulsion stuff, the first thing that jumped out in my mind about the idea of it chasing fish in the water is that they state it's not quite as efficient as a crocodilian tail. And crocs don't do that. No, they're not pursuit hunters. No, like they're not they're not going to outswim fish because they're massive compared to the fish. And they don't do that with other prey typically. Like the tail is to move around and to propel them into their ambush attack at the water's edge. But they're not chasing fish. Usually they're ambushing the fish as well. You know, the fish gets too close and they grab it. So if a croc's not doing it, a T-Rex-sized predator with a less efficient tail is almost certainly yeah. not doing it, which the makes other, sense. The other thing that I have seen people point out is that the tail could also be a display structure. Yes. Not necessarily solely a display structure. Yeah, you can have both. You can be display and do stuff with it. But for an animal that has devoted a lot of real estate on its back to doing something very possibly related to display... The thought that it continues down the tail mm -hmm. is pretty tempting. And once again, I just, what a cool, one of my favorite things about Spinosaurus is that news comes out about Spinosaurus, and then there's scientific discussion, and then there's media stuff, and then there's a bunch of rabid people getting very angry about things, mm -hmm. and then there's beautiful artwork. Um, I have saved aside so much artwork. It's so much fun. Because it's really cool. I would love for us to find out that Spinosaurus was just the peacock of the theropod oh, world absolutely. with just this ridiculous mosaic along the back and tail of colors and display. Yeah, all iridescent and just beautiful. And, oh yeah. I, Spinosaurus as the prettiest dinosaur. <laughs> I'm on board. Throw some feathers on there. Absolutely. Well, speaking of dinosaurs, I think it Should is we do that some more? About, you know what? <laughs> Shall we? Yes. Shall we speak about dinosaurs for another hour or so? Let's do it. That's it for the news, and after we return from the rake, we will talk about a different group of pretty dinosaurs, the ones with the horns and stuff. Woohoo! Stay tuned. In the spring of the year 1887, a man named George Cannon, digging for fossils in Colorado, found the fossilized remains of a pair of horns, bony horns, that were united by being attached to a chunk of the roof of a skull. He sent this fossil remain to a man named Othniel Charles Marsh. Hey, we've heard of him. Very famous early American paleontologist. We talked about him in episode 58 about the Bone Wars. 
Marsh examined the skull, uh, the, the bones, and noted that the horn, the, the the bone appeared to be horn cores, so the the bony core inside of a bone that, that is... would have been covered by a sheath. Similar thing you find in like bovids, cows, and bulls and stuff. And that the surface was covered in these grooves that suggested a lot of blood vessels, which would have fed that sheath that would have covered the bone. That there was a sinus cavity at the base of the bone core. All of which were very, very reminiscent of, like Will just said, bovines and such. Yeah. So he identified it as bison alticornis, <laughs> indicating that it was a very large, very strange ancient bison. Even in that time, there was some skepticism mm -hmm. about this. The next year, in 1888, he received another pair of horns, smaller this time, with some more skull, and this time he saw enough similarities to compare it to Stegosaurus, and suggested that it might represent a type of dinosaur. He named it Ceratops montanus. And then the following year, in 1889, after receiving a, another bunch of horns, this time attached to a partial skull, he concluded that, yes, indeed, what we're looking at is a strange group of dinosaurs. And this skull, he gave the name, and to this skull, he gave the name Triceratops. Triceratops! Over the, the following years, he and colleagues came to realize that there was a group of horned dinosaurs that were known as Ceratopsians. The name Ceratopsians comes from Ceratops, the first genus name given to a Ceratopsian horned dinosaur, even though the name Ceratops is no longer considered a valid name of a dinosaur because there's not enough material there to really identify what animal it was, some kind of horned dinosaur. So the name is gone, but it gave us the term Ceratopsian, which refers to all these animals. These are some of the most famous dinosaurs, Triceratops obviously being, pos like, death top three. Yeah. Like the, the Trinity, like the Justice League. Yes. This, it is one of the top dinosaurs. More specifically, the famous ones belong to a family called Ceratopsids, which are well known for being big, like elephant-sized and bigger. <laughs> having these enormous skulls, these huge heads that are wide in the back and narrow at the, the front, where they have a beak that they use to eat their food. They have horns on their skulls, one above the nose oftentimes, horns above the eyes. They have these big frills in the back of the skull draping over their necks that often also have bumps and spikes all over mm -hmm. them. They have these incredibly complex tooth batteries in their mouths. They are very specialized, very striking to look at, very famous dinosaurs. Which only, which makes the situation of thinking of a time where we didn't know they existed so bizarre, like particularly bizarre. Like every dinosaur we had to discover at some point. But the idea that part of a triceratops comes out of the ground and goes, is it a big cow? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's Triceratops. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, and to imagine the first person to see that, mm -hmm. that is like nothing we have. Yes. And Triceratops is, funnily enough, like the famous one, one of the biggest ones, but it's pretty tame compared to a lot of other Ceratopsids. Yep. Like you've got uh, some of the famous 
diversity of these animals includes things like Styracosaurus. The best Ceratopsian, in my which opinion. Which <laughs> is just, it, his skull is like the Iron Throne. Yep. Which is a comparison that only makes sense nowadays, but has been true the whole time. Yes. Uh, Pachyrhinosaurus, which has that big boss of bone over its nose. Yeah, like a boxing glove. <laughs> and you've got, they've got spikes in all directions and horns pointing in big ones, little ones, crooked ones. Like, there is this, the diversity of Ceratopsian skulls is a lot like uh, animals today, like gazelle and deer and bovi- bovines yeah. again. Lots of different shapes and sizes. Where your ornamentation. Your head ornamentation is just hugely creative and diverse. And the weird ones, like there are ones with hooked horns. Oh, yeah. That don't even point the way you'd be stabbing with them. And it's, what are you doing with that? I love it so much. We'll get to that later. But first, (laughs) let's talk about how they started. Let's take a walk through the evolutionary history of this group. Because they do not start out like the famous ones. <gasps> what? As we discussed back in episode 21, Ceratopsians belong to a larger group of dinosaurs called Marginocephalia. They are the closest relatives, which includes Ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs, and their closest relatives, the Pachycephalosaurs, which are the dome-headed ones that there was a dumb one in Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, which already are not the two groups you might expect to be closely related to each other. No, they share some features, many of which are sort of weird, enigmatic bone features that paleontologists Yeah, very about. specific things. One of the things they share is a shelf of bone around the back of the skull. And if you look at pachycephalosaurs, they also have a lot of ornamentation yeah, on the back of the skull. they got little spikes going in a half ring. Although there is apparently evidence that the shelf of bone in the back of the skull is convergent. Ah! <laughs> They both have it, but they evolved it independently. I love conversion evolution so much. (laughs) Episode 70. (laughs) The earliest of both of these groups were small, bipedal, two-legged herbivores, typically around one to two meters long, so, you know, three to seven feet or so. Not very big. Mm -hmm. The earliest ceratopsians have a couple of features... That set them apart, one of which is a special bone in the upper jaw called the rostral bone, Mm -hmm. which is a bone that sits at the front of the upper jaw and adds just a little extra piece. Okay. Typically makes part of the beak that they have at the front of their mouth. And another feature shared among ceratopsians are little spikes on the cheeks. Yeah. Horns that are part of the jugal bone, which is part of the cheekbone. Little horns. It looks like they have those really prominent cheekbones. (laughs) It's just like uh, Corella de Ville cheekbones sticking out. The earliest ceratopsians in the fossil record are known from the late Jurassic. So we're looking at a little bit, around 150 million years ago in that area. This is about the middle of the age of dinosaurs. Mm Mm-hmm. They really don't show up until, this is, for example, the peak of the Stegosaurus. Yeah, which is surprising for such a notable group. That's much later than I would have, if you had asked me to guess, that's later than I would have guessed. They they start showing up around the same time that birds start showing up. Yeah! Weird. A couple of famous ones are known from China, Yinlong and Chaoyangsaurus, for example. Both from China, which is a good indication that Asia is possibly where Ceratopsians got their start. These were, like I said, small, two-legged, they have a little beak, 
In Yinlong, at least, there is evidence of large jaw muscles mm. providing a strong bite, which is good for cropping, right, s- slicing and picking yeah. at food. Shearing off vegetation and stuff. As we move into the early Cretaceous, we see more diversity of these early bipedal beaked horns on the cheek ceratopsians, including some very famous ones like Psittacosaurus. Psittacosaurus! Psittacosaurus is about two meters long. Again, bipedal, although there is some evidence that throughout their life they may have shifted. Mm -hmm. Quadrupeds as babies and bipedal as adults. Which is like dinosaurs shifting the way they walk as they age is a cool concept. Yeah, it is. They have the beak, they have the cheek horns, they have slicing teeth with self-sharpening edges. A couple specimens have been found with gastroliths, so grinding stones that they were swallowing to help grind up rocks. They are super abundant. Psittacosaurus is one of the best-known dinosaurs. There are hundreds of individuals across several species, of varying ages. They are found in China, Mongolia, Siberia, in different ancient environments. This was a very, very successful, widespread group of animals. Some of the fossils are well-preserved enough, as we've discussed before, to give us indication of their appearance. Mm-hmm. We know some of the coloration of Psittacosaurus, and they have quills on the tail. Yeah. These sort of tall, bristly quills, and whether or not those are feathers is a matter of big debate. <laughs> very cool. Like, And I love their name as well, because it captures the look of their face. Yeah, parrot. Parrots. These are, these are early ceratopsians did not look like triceratops. They looked like little parrot dinosaurs. Which is awesome as well. Parrots are fantastic. And I love that they were doing well. They were huge widespread. They were diverse. They had cool features. They had tail quills. Like weird, cool little animals don't don't look like triceratops. No, no horns, no frills, short-ish face, two-legged. These were very, they look more like Pachycephalosaurus than like a triceratops. Like if, if, uh, if I was shown one of those... And you said, and these actually will lead to Iguanodon. I'd be like, okay, yeah, I guess. Sure, I believe you. Yeah, that loses the beak at some point. All right. Well, maybe. (laughs) However, around the same time, the early Cretaceous, we start to see the origins of newer things cropping up in a group that is called Neoceratopsia. Woo! We start to see forms that have that ridge in the back of the skull expanding into a small frill, possibly for muscle attachment. Oh. To increase the strength of those jaws. So, like, 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 um, mammals have the 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 sagittal crest. sagittal crest across the top of the skull uh, for muscle attachment. That's what gives gorillas their tall head. Yep. Uh, they w- may have had that crest for a similar thing. Yes, yeah, so but it's in the back of the skull where you might have seen anchoring of jaw muscles. Yeah, that might be how the frill got going. That makes sense. We see a bunch of groups in Asia, Liaoceratops, Archaeoceratops, some real famous old groups, but also in North America. So a few years ago, uh, Aquilops was named from Montana by Andy Farkey and colleagues, which is a little beaked horn on the, the sides of the cheek with the frill. There are also fragments of these early Ceratopsians across the U.S., Maryland, Utah, Idaho. So these animals, by this point, had become widespread in the old world and the new world. They had made it over here to North America. There is even evidence that there were multiple migrations back and forth 
between Asia and North America by this time. Cool. And then, as we move into the later Cretaceous, we start to see some more familiar features showing up. So, around 100 million years ago and beyond, we see newer Ceratopsians with larger skulls, bigger frills in the back of the, the, the skull, more restricted jaw motion. So if you think of like a cow today, they move their jaw back and like side to side. Mm-hmm. Ceratopsians lost the ability to really do that, and their jaw became restricted more to up and down and forward and back motion. Okay. So they are shearing vertically, not side to side. And Ceratopsians, and a lot of them become fully quadrupedal. Yeah. Possibly because they now have bigger heads. Yeah, it's <laughs> the weight. It harder. <laughs> <laughs> we see a bunch of these, but by far the most famous of them, and indeed one of the most famous Ceratopsians of all time. Will looks very excited. Do you have a guess? Protoceratops? Protoceratops. Oh, I love Protoceratops. Protoceratops comes from Mongolia. It is a quadrupedal, herbivorous, early Ceratopsian. It's about two meters long again, so six feet yeah. long from beak to tail. Bigger frill, but still no horns. Uh, its beak had teeth in it, which is an earlier feature that we will later see lost in the later Ceratopsians. Protoceratops, if you picture Sarah from The Land Before Time, yeah. without the little horn, uh, nubs. horn nubs, that's basically, yeah. you're, you're, you're picturing a good approximation of Protoceratops. Yep. A little hornless Ceratops. It's one of the main characters in the Dinotopia books, which is part of the reason I always had a soft spot. It was their dino interpreter. Yes, yes, yes. Like Psittacosaurus, Protoceratops is extremely common. Hundreds of individuals are known, including all different ages, including eggs with embryos, including nesting sites. There is, of course, that one very famous Protoceratops that was fossilized, seemingly locked in combat with Velociraptor. Crushing its hand in its beak. (laughs) Which just, with all those jaw muscles. Yep. Once again... Parrots. (laughs) Parrots. <laughs> yes, but with teeth. With teeth in this there. This one has teeth. <laughs> its cousins are found across Asia and also Europe. There are a lot of these sort of smaller early Ceratopsians. And then we start to see hints of newer things. In New Mexico, around 90 million years ago, we have found evidence of a dinosaur named Zuniceratops. Cool name. Which is a lot like Protoceratops. With a couple of notable differences. Some upgrades? Some upgrades. Number one, it's big. About three meters long. Okay, wow. So like alligator size and about a meter tall. So, you know, hip to rib height on an adult human. Yeah. It also has horns by its eyes. Ooh. Zuniceratops is considered a close relative, if not actual ancestor, of a family called the Ceratopsidae. Hey. Ceratopsidae show up in the toward the end of the Cretaceous. These are the famous Ceratopsids. These, we start to see the repeated evolution of enormous body size. We are talking four to eight meters long. We are talking two to three meters tall, so as, as much as ten feet tall, and in terms of tonnage, we are talking elephant- or two elephants. Yeah. Very large animals in some cases. They have horns on the nose. They have horns, uh, what are called post-orbital horns, behind the orbit. 
sticking out above the eyes. Their frills, in many cases, become very large and often have uh, they they have bones along the edge. These additional bones that often end up taking the shape of bumps and spikes and hooks and all sorts of stuff. These are extremely abundant, extremely diverse, and include some of the most famous dinosaurs ever. Triceratops, Styracosaurus, Pentaceratops, Diabloceratops. You've got all these cool varying takes on the shape and structure of the horns and the frills. Some of their heads become positively... Among Ceratopsians, we find the largest skulls... (laughs) invertebrate history outside of the ocean. Yeah. Taurosaurus and Pentaceratops have skulls that can grow over two meters long. These are six, seven foot long skulls. Positively enormous. This is a skull the size of a car. And not just like long, but decked out and heavy like oh yeah with horns and spikes because like a lot of times when you hear about long skulls there's like animals that have these really long skulls but they're narrow and they're like a crocodilian yeah bird or croc shaped yeah these are not these are like the big triangle just giant yeah they're wide and long and they're tall they're just big another feature we see among the ceratopsids is what's known as the sin cervical the first three neck vertebrae are fused into one element. Wow. We see something like this in birds. Their hip... Well, a lot of animals have fused hip Mm -hmm, vertebrae. mm -hmm. It's thought that those three fused vertebrae are there to provide extra support for their giant heads. Yeah. Ceratopsids also have very large nasal openings. Like, if you look at a ceratopsian skull, they have these big nose holes, which probably suggests a complex physiology Maybe there's some thermoregulation Mm -hmm. going on, like Mm -hmm. we've discussed before with other dinosaurs. These dinosaurs are limited to pretty much the last 20 million years of the Cretaceous. The famous Ceratopsians don't show up until pretty much the very end of the age of dinosaurs. And then they just go crazy. And then they go crazy. (laughs) Lots of these are known from huge assemblages with dozens to hundreds of individuals I've seen citations that suggest that some might even have thousands of individuals in them. Gah! Most of the ceratopsids are known from really well-preserved skulls. I found a paper that cited that in the Campanian, toward the end of the Cretaceous, where ceratopsians are found, they tend to make up 25 to 42% of their dinosaur communities. Wow. And by the latest Cretaceous, that number goes up to about two-thirds. Wow! Where you have ceratopsids, they are ma- they are two-thirds of the dinosaurs that you have where they live. Which brings us back to that bovid comparison. Yes, just these <laughs> huge assemblages. More on that in a little bit. <laughs> and pretty much all of them are from Western North America. Which, that's always the part that s- surprises me, or surprised me when I learned it. Like, we know that they were all around the world. Like, we have the early ones from all over. And Protoceratops is famously Mongolian. Yep. And then we have all these famous ones from a short period of time, which that's not crazy unusual. Like a lot of the famous dinosaurs. Ankylosaurs we talked about. Yeah. Are from the end because a lot of them are from a few particular deposits that all date toward the end of the Cretaceous. (laughs) So, yeah, that makes sense. But the fact that they're North American 
why weren't you everywhere? Like super huh. abundant one place. That's so bizarre to me. It is suggest- suspected based on that that they originated in North America and then got their big start. There is one or two. There are one or two from Asia, Cenoceratops, uh, which famously was featured in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Mm-hmm. One of, like, maybe the one cool science-y thing that they did in that movie. <laughs> Go listen to our But We Digress. There's also a Tyrannoceratops from over in Asia, which might be a Ceratopsid. I've seen some back and forth on that one. Hmm. But not just North America, Western North America. Yeah. Because as we discussed in episode 71, during the Cretaceous, North America was cut in half yep. by the Western Interior Seaway. A single tooth has been found in Mississippi. Uh, I, I talked with Andy Farkey about this uh, years ago when he published it. That appears to be a ceratopsid tooth in marine sediment thought to have washed off the shore of eastern North yeah, America. Yeah. Appalachia, as opposed to Laramidia, which is, as far as I've heard, the only indication of ceratopsids in eastern North America. And a suggestion that maybe right at the end, because that is latest Cretaceous, that tooth, as the seaway retreated, these dinosaurs may have just managed to sneak over before the Cretaceous ended and took them all out. Yes. But, for the most part, almost entirely, Western North America, and they did great. One of the innovations that helped them do great were their teeth. Ceratopsians have some of the most complex dentitions, tooth setups, of any animals ever. Yeah. They had what is known as a dental battery. Large numbers, and throughout their evolution, we see that the number of teeth increases, of very closely interlocked teeth. So they are multiple teeth, but it would look like one block of tooth. Yeah, like a, like the, the face of a file or something, where it's just bunches all together. Yes, it created a stable cutting surface. That would vertically shear, again, the top and bottom would shear vertically past each other. The teeth are complex, containing five different tissue types, (laughs) which is second only to hadrosaurs in complexity. Not second among dinosaurs. Second. Yes. That means you, mammals, who are famous for your teeth. These are teeth that rivaled, if not succeeded, the complexity of mammal dentition. Because of the structure of their teeth, because of the different layers in the teeth they wore, as they wore down, they stayed sharp. Yeah. As they wore through the layers. Yeah, the different materials wore at different rates so that it made a specific shape no matter how much you wore it. <laughs> and the because of the interlocking of the teeth, they could replace their teeth, as all dinosaurs did, without leaving gaps. Which like is so cool. The new tooth was there and ready to go, and we have a continuing a continuous surface. They had no teeth in the front of the mouth, just the beak. They had lost those front teeth, which meant that whereas earlier ceratopsians were good for cropping, so selectively snipping and grabbing at the the foods, these mouths were good for crushing and shearing. They had very big jaw muscles with very powerful bites. Like, of the dinosaurs to get bit by, this is toward the bottom of the list. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this feeding system is that once it shows up, very little change happens to it. There's even, you know, their skulls are coming in all sorts of wacky shapes and sizes. The teeth do not vary very much. They found a winning strategy Mm -hmm. and stuck with it. And it's, and it makes sense if we see the teeth get really good at their job and then everything else gets crippled. Yeah. 
because you just found a winning strategy, go crazy. Yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want because you're going to find food because what's going to stand up to those teeth? Because their beaks are narrow, among other things, it is thought that Ceratopsians were probably very selective eaters. Hmm. For example, their beaks are very narrow, which meant they would be good at selectively picking and grabbing at foods. Okay. Right. Uh, we see, typically, as I've seen referenced, we see that wider mouths tend to be more generalized feeding animals. Yeah. Because you have a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. You have a flat surface to just lawn mower. Doesn't matter what goes in there. Just like Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> but narrow mouths tend to be good for picking the things you want. So like cow versus deer is what comes to mind to me of like wide mouth grazing versus I'm nibbling on specific things. It's thought that because they have, because they're selective and because they have such a powerful specialized feeding apparatus that they were probably eating low quality, high fiber foods. Hmm. Because one of the reasons that animals, you know, there are a lot of plants that are really tough, not very nutritious and thus difficult to eat, which means that they grow everywhere. So if you, it takes some doing, but if you can evolve something that can deal with those plants, you can eat all of them. Which, those two aspects almost seem in contradiction to one another, that you're a selective browser with a narrow mouth, but eating tough stuff. It seems like if you're being selective, you'd eat the good stuff, or if you're eating the tough stuff, you would just eat. And right, right. take. So it's interesting that well, they, they have, have both. A, they have a, a giant panda thing going on. Yeah, yeah, they do. You have Good point. specialized to eat a thing that no one else is going to get in your way for. Yeah. No one else can... Ha I guess hadrosaurs might be able to do it. But if you can focus on a food that only you can eat, you have no competition. Yes. And so you can live by the hundreds and make up two-thirds of your ecosystem, because that's what lives there is the food you can eat. Yeah, cool. It's been suggested that those foods might have been gymnosperms, might have been ferns. I saw an interesting discussion uh, in, this might have been the Dinosauria, it was one of the references I looked at, that talked about how browsing versus grazing isn't particularly helpful in talking about dinosaurs, because there wasn't really grass yeah, like what we, we have today. grazing. <laughs> right, but... Selective versus generalist, tough food versus easy food. These may have been the specialists in what we might think of a lot of grazers doing today. Mm. Like horses. I eat grass and I have crazy teeth to deal with it so that I'm not competing with others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ceratopsids are split into two groups. And I mention this because it's a fun little bit of science. The chasmosaurs and the centrosaurs. The distinction used to be easy. <laughs> used to be clear-cut. The centrosaurs have big nose horns and very little or no orbital horns, eye horns, brow horns, they're called sometimes. And the chasmosaurs have the opposite. Yeah. Big eye horns, small nose horns. And then, especially in the last several years, we have found a bunch of ceratopsids that tell us that that is not at all the case. <laughs> that there is way more variation and way more convergence than we thought there was. It is no longer as easy as saying big nose means that you are a centrosaur. No, it doesn't work that way. And and that that tracks. Almost every time <laughs> you hear a description like that, oh yeah, this group has this very easily identifiable feature and this group doesn't. 
all right, yeah, but do they? Yeah. <laughs> no. Keep digging. How often does nature work that way? <laughs> However, some of the things that do separate them is that the centrosaurs tend to have shorter, deeper snouts, so deeper jaws, and they typically have a pair of horns on the back of the frill. Oh, yeah. So sticking out sort of the, the apex of the frill, including things like Centrosaurus, Styracosaurus is in here, yeah. Pachyrhinosaurus is in there. They have those spikes on the on the frills. Yeah, very prominent horn-like spikes. Uh, in some cases, they, like, hook forward mm-hmm. or off to the sides. Well, like, like Styracosaurus, you have a crown of horns. Yes. <laughs> Chasmosaurs have longer, shallower snouts. They have longer rostral bones. And, typically but not always, big uh, brow horns compared to their nose horns. This is where you find Triceratops, Mm -hmm. Pentaceratops, Chasmosaurus. And another thing that is very exciting about Ceratopsians is that there are new ones being found all the time. Case in point. (laughs) In between the last episode and this one, (laughs) in April 2020... Wilson et al. identified a new one. This was published in Royal Society Open Science. The fossil comes out of the Two Medicine Formation here out out west uh, in North America. This was not the discovery of a new fossil specimen, but a re-identification. Oh. So the Two Medicine Formation has three ceratopsids known, Rubiosaurus, Styracosaurus, and I don't have the other one written down, so I'm not going to guess at it. This paper re-identifies one of the Rubiosaurus specimens as a new species and genus, Stellosaurus ancelae, and they point out that there is a temporal progression of species in this group in that formation. Huh. As time went on, you have these three, now four, different species not living necessarily with each other, but apparently replacing each other. Oh, yeah. And that Stellosaurus might be an intermediate along that progression. That it fills in this timeline of ceratopsids in the two medicine formation, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that That's a cool concept as well, is that, you know, you if you were able to time lapse this region or other regions in the Western U.S. during this period, during this time, you would see different horned dinosaurs coming and dominating the area and then being pushed out or replaced by new ones. Different dynasties. Like, there would always be a horned dinosaur present. There would always be a ceratopsian. Yes. But how many horns and what shape they were (laughs) would shift as they took over from one another. That's a cool concept. And this one would have been similar to Styracosaurus. Ah. And again, I don't have all the details in front of me, but this one either came right after or right before Styracosaurus. Nice. And then the Cretaceous ends and they all go extinct. Yes. Episode five and Cretaceous extinction takes out at the end. It wasn't just the big crazy ceratopsids. There are smaller, earlier groups of ceratopsians still around by then. Well, like when we were talking with horses, it's not that the little ones went away and gave rise to the big ones. It's nope. the And then big ones showed up too. Yes. <laughs> and they all disappear at the end of the Cretaceous. I love going through the evolution of this group because we've discussed on the podcast so often that we look at modern day animals and make the mistake of thinking that they are representative of the whole group. Yes. Horses, episode 76. Horses today are so iconic and they they have such a unique and interesting Um, body shape. Critical to human culture. They're such a, like we have this idea of horses and yet 
most of their evolution was not like that. Yeah. Lots of today's animals are like that. Sloths, episode 24, we said the same thing. Ceratops, if we lived during the Cretaceous, we would be in danger of making the same mistake of thinking that the Ceratopsians we have now, at the end of the Cretaceous, are indicative of this evolutionary history that they are relative newcomers to. And oddities. Yeah, and they're weird. Like, the early ones were small and bipedal and, you know, beaked, but not huge-skulled. Yeah. And now we have these giant mammoth horned monstrosity you're weird you're a bunch of weirdos yeah they're very they're like a uh, uh, fantasy writer's idea yes of what like it's um if uh <laughs> it's like if you hit if we lived in the early cretaceous and they they created a pokemon based on psittacosaurus and then they said all right make the first stage look like psittacosaurus the second stage, go nuts. Yeah, we gotta keep, we gotta make it crazier. Make it look however you want, and they came up with a triceratops. It's like when they put <laughs> real or fossil animals into fantasy games and stuff, and they just add a whole bunch of spikes and a whole yep. bunch of, you know, frills and a whole bunch of, and it's, it's like that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you just slapped a bunch of stuff all over its face. That this was for real and it happened. <laughs> uh, also, we don't know if they also may have had quills and stuff. Yeah, like if Psittacosaurus had it. <laughs> like, we don't know if that's something that the Biggins inherited later on, some sort of bristly integument. I like to think they did because oh, it makes it cooler. It would have been so cool. <laughs> However, there are, even with this big evolutionary history, there are lots of questions about the lifestyles and habits of Ceratopsians. Most prominently, what were they doing with those wacky heads of yeah. theirs. What, what's up with your face? All of this. All of this. All of this. What are you doing with it? It has been the subject of much discussion and debate and study over the last several decades, and we're going to talk about that after the break. Don't turn your head into a medieval weapon for nothing. No. Horns above the eyes, horns on the cheeks, horns on the nose, horns around that wacky frill. What were they doing? Why? This is one of the most asked, probably the most asked question, scientifically and popularly, mm -hmm. about ceratopsians. What's the deal? Yes. There have been several major hypotheses that have been tested and studied and suggested by scientists. Let's talk about some of them, shall we? First, the obvious one for defense. Yes. That that seems to be the go-to. Yeah, no, you have big horns, you have a big shield on your head. You are using it defensively. The idea here would be that your frill protects the neck, your horns are there for when the predator shows up, you can shoo them away. Yes. Or stick them in the ribs. Yeah, just like we see with horned animals today, that they're going to fight off you're Attackers. Gonna, you're going to get gored. Yes. And some of the earliest depictions of ceratopsians lend popularity to this idea. Triceratops made its movie debut fighting T-Rex. Yep. And that's a, an image that has stuck around. There is evidence in the fossil record of bite marks on ceratopsian frills. Yeah. Although I don't know of any that are definite hunting 
uh, the ones that I've read about are feeding traces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I feel like I may have heard about hunting examples, but I'm not sure. Which, if so, would lend perhaps some support that, yeah, no, this frill is catching a bite. However, this suggestion has also been challenged on a number of grounds. For one thing, a lot of ceratopsian frills tend to be really thin in places. Yeah, they're not as robust as they may look. And when I say thin in places, I mean like millimeters thin. (laughs) Really, really thin. Although there is variation. Some places and some species have thicker frills than others. But in the case of the thinner examples, that's not great. It's not defensive if it shatters. Yes. Also, there is evidence from of vascularization, that the frills were run through with blood vessels to supply blood flow up in the the frill area, which is also not necessarily something you want in a defensive structure. Yeah, a thing that's going to be attacked. Like, the point of it is to be attacked. Right. It means you're going to bleed a whole bunch. Yep. (laughs) And another big sort of nay against defensiveness is that a lot of species have horns and stuff that point the wrong direction. Yes. Like horns on the frill that hook downwards or away. Ineosaurus is a, a, a ceratopsian whose nose horn goes, curves forward and down. Yes. Like wh- like a like a bottle opener. Well, it looks like a bent nail. <laughs> yeah, it does. So why would you have that if... Th- that's not good for goring. No. And your spikes on your your frill are not pointing outwards like you might want them to to deter a bite. They're like curving down and in weird directions. So it seems that at least in some cases, you're not really built to ward off a predator. Yes. And then the other thing that has been suggested along those same lines is if these were primarily for defense, they would all look much more similar. There, There would be some priority over function right than just crazy form why would everyone have a different shape to its horns and frills if the primary function was defense yes not to say they couldn't be defensive i mean like human shields take a variety of shapes but they're always usually pretty recognizable as a shield yes so it's not that there can't be variety but you expect there to be a common core so at the very least Defense is not a wholly satisfying explanation. I remember being dis- uh, uh, unsatisfied as a little kid when it was just like, yeah, the shield is for defense, period. Because there was part of me that went, well, yeah, it's real good at defending the neck. What about the entire rest of you? Yeah, you're not an ankylosaur. Yeah. You're not armored. Well, it's the same way I felt when early books were like, yeah, Stegosaurus' spines are for defense. How? Yeah, why? No. Defending from uh, birds landing on you? Against predators that bite directly from above. Yes. Although I have heard it suggested that they were deterrents for perching parasites and like little dinosaurs. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's like the spikes they put yeah. along <laughs> building edges. I actually, I, I really It was to it. keep pigeons <laughs> from <laughs> landing and pooping on them. Another idea for it, the frills specifically, which is an outdated idea these days, is that they served as attachment points for enormous jaw muscles. Yeah. Like, positively huge jaw muscles. Here comes the crimson chin. (laughs) (laughs) But this is sort of outdated at this point, largely because, number one, there's no evidence for muscle attachment there. Muscle attachment leaves 
signatures on bones. Scars, muscle scars on bones, which doesn't appear to be present in the frills, whereas we do actually see muscle attachment sites around the jaw. And they had big, powerful jaw muscles, but not meter-long jaw muscles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like a suspension bridge. <laughs> it's just these... And, and indeed, uh, as one source I, I read pointed out, there's not necessarily a benefit to longer muscles. Yeah. The strength of a muscle is not solely from the length of it as much as the thickness and the yeah, shape. The of density the of the, the fibers. Another big suggestion, which comes up as an explanation for about half of the weird things that we see in dinosaurs, is that it may have helped thermoregulate. Yes. Temperature control. Because, like I said, you've got a lot of vascularization, a lot of blood flow up in that area. And in some animals today, like elephants, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. their ears they use to both absorb heat, potentially, you know, like your, your blood is collecting heat from the sun, or more often cited, is to shed heat. Yeah, that's not, uh, elephant ears aren't for good hearing, it's for cooling down. A lot of their cool hearing is coming from sounds that the (laughs) the big collecting ears aren't the important part for. So you pump a lot of your warm blood into the ears, and it radiates off the heat to cool you down. You'll see them flap them to do that. Ceratopsy, some ceratopsians, and my, my source that I was reading, which again, I think was the dinosauria, pointed out that some of them have a square meter of frill space, which could easily be a huge solar panel. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a solar panel. (laughs) Or a huge air conditioning unit, Mm -hmm. releasing your heat. Which just gives me the picture of them, like, bobbing their heads to... Waving it around. Yeah, to aerate the frill. I like the idea of them shaking it. Yeah. Because I had a conversation a while back about elephant sneezes. And I looked up YouTube videos because uh, I was talking with a person at the museum about what happens if our mastodon sneezes. Yes. Because if it sneezes, it's going to get its tusks stuck in the ground. Yeah. And then I thought, do elephants even sneeze forward? Yep. When your head weighs as much as a cow, I, that would hurt you. And the couple of videos that I found showed elephants shaking their heads when they sneeze and like whipping the trunk. Yeah. It's, uh, if think of the way your dog sneezes, where they go and shake the head when they sneeze. I imagine ceratopsians shaking their heads around because if they bobbed forward and back, they would pop their heads off. Well, they would tip over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then stick in the ground. There have also apparently been some studies that have found evidence of possible temperature gradients across the skull and the horns. It's like like heat treating metal. <laughs> yeah, like you could get differential temperature in different parts of them. That's insane. So this seems like maybe they were used that way. But again, one of the big kind of sticking points here is if that was a primary function, you would expect some standardization. Yes. Why are they so variable? Which brings us to our final hypothesis, which is probably the first one you will hear from a paleontologist these days, and is the, if thermoregulation is suggested for about half of the weird features in dinosaurs, this is the hypothesis that is suggested for all of the weird features in dinosaurs. Hey! That it's a signal. Yes. You're using it as some sort of signaling feature, either to impress mates, or to show off when you're trying to shoo a male away from your territory, or to identify your own species from afar, possibly head-to-head combat, like we see in animals today like bison and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. goats and such. 
that it is that that square meter of real estate is not just solar panel but billboard. Yes. Here I am, and indeed, if it's vascularized, there are animals today that have highly vascularized tissue that they pump blood into to give it a red color. Yeah, that they blush and brighten or deepen the colors. So these could be big display structures. And uh, if we bring it to today's animals, if anyone's ever looked at certain like antelope horns and be like, how in the world does that work as a horn? Like it's so curved back, you can itch your butt with it. That's like the Ibex literally can scratch their butt. (laughs) And, but there's no way you can get that point forward to stab an animal really well. Yeah, because it's mainly used for them to uh, sword fight, like lock them together like sabers. Right, and then push and, and twist. Pu- yeah, and not stab each other. It's like it's ornamental. Yeah. It's decorative. It's a, it's a ceremonial yep. saber. <laughs> there are a, a handful of supporting factors for this. One big one. Is that in many ceratopsians, the horns and frills don't fully develop until they are adults. Hey. It's something you're not using until you're an adult. You're reaching that point in your life where you're going to notice some weird <laughs> some changes, changes in your body. Happening. <laughs> I went through them. You're, you're going to go through them. If you have any questions, ask me. You start getting your horns stuck on branches. If they were for defense, for example, you'd expect babies would have at least some reason to have them as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas a display structure, especially if it's related to mating, makes perfect sense for adults to get it. Uh, as an example, protoceratops, the adult frills are longer and wider, and they're also raised. So a smaller protoceratops, the frills sit flatter against the neck. Yeah. And the adults, they flare out more because they're flashier. Another big point of support comes from comparison with living animals, and the way that one of my references put it, horns in living animals, from beetles to bison, are pretty much exclusively for communication. Yes. You have them so that you can show off to mates, so that you can impress and shoo away other males. This also accounts for variation. Why does every new different species have a different arrangement of horns and frills? Because they are showing off to their species. Yeah, what's what's uh, impressive and sexy to a Triceratops may not work for Styracosaurus. You need a, yes. a new set of duds. And indeed, if because so much of the variation in Ceratopsians is that the skull structure. In fact, a lot of species are identified based on skull features. Mm-hmm. If that is what's determining reproductive success, then that is going to be under very strong selective pressure, and it might not be that each species needed to develop a different shape of the skull to show off to their species, but that as the skulls changed, species separated. Yeah. Because you're changing your reproductive system, and that will lead to speciation. Which means that these wouldn't just be the the bovids of the dinosaur world, but the birds of paradise yes. <laughs> of the dinosaur world. Oh boy. Right? Dinosaurs were so pretty. Yes, they were. Now, some of the these are not mutually exclusive. It could be doing all of these things, except for the muscle thing. That's <laughs> Yeah. And indeed, they could be for display, but we keep relating it to goats and bison and stuff who fight. Absolutely they do. And they certainly could have fought. There is some suggestion. There has been some evidence. Certain species, like Triceratops, did have thicker frills. 
which might have been more protective. There was a study in 2009 that found that Triceratops frills show more injury than dinosaurs like Centrosaurus. So maybe some of them were mm-hmm. getting into scraps more than others, although that's it argued back and forth. So it, it could be that one size doesn't fit all, and some of them yes. were using it for a variety of things. One, some fighting, some doing less fighting, some doing more showing off, things like that. And on the defensive note, there are lots of horned animals today, even though the main, you know, typical function of the horns is for this wildebeest and that wildebeest to figure out who's going to get with this wildebeest. When a hyena or a lion come along, they're still going to try to gore that predator yeah. <laughs> with even those if horns. it's not the perfect tool for No. Them. You got it. I still got a sharp thing on my head and you're trying to eat. It's it's the same concept of if I'm attacked by an animal, I'm going to end up biting that animal, even though my teeth suck for biting. Like a mouse. Yes. <laughs> a mouse's teeth are not made for biting. Or like a, a horse. Yes. The back legs. Yep. It didn't evolve its legs for defense. But if you go after a horse, you shouldn't walk behind a horse. No. <laughs> it's got these powerful tools. And so you could have it displaying competing with each other and defending. I also had the idea that they could be defending themselves without it being armor. Uh, frilled lizards. Yep. If I have a big, scary-looking frill, that might be enough to get most predators to go, you know what? I don't want to swallow that. Yeah, yeah. If you if, if they're doing the blushing thing, yes. right? They have an actual stop sign yep. on their head. I mean, could you picture just giant eye spots and things like that? Uh, man, nothing makes me happier than imagining that Ceratopsian frills were as varied and diverse as butterfly wings. Yes. Like, oh, that's what I want. <laughs> this one looks like a T-Rex. This is my dinosaur fan fiction. <laughs> now, one very interesting note leading into our next section of discussion about social lives is that if these are display structures, if these are mating related, one of the most surprising things that I've learned upon looking through uh, uh, research on these is that sexual dimorphism, so that is differences between the sexes, differences in size or differences in ornamentation. Males and females are distinct. Is extremely rare and argued by some almost non-existent Across ceratopsians. Which does seem on at the initial surface to be an argument against a lot of the social display stuff. Right, right. They are there has been some suggestion for things like protoceratops, but often these are challenged, and it's generally considered that most of them we don't have good evidence for sexual dimorphism. Which doesn't mean they're not display structures, but is interesting because it seems to suggest males and females were doing very similar mm-hmm. things. Although, I would point out that we don't know what color the frills were. Yeah, good and point. Because you think about animals today with, like, birds or a lot of lizards, the big distinction, especially in signaling, is yeah. color. Yeah, like, there's lots of lizards where the male-female, if I give you uh, uh, silhouettes, oh yeah, you want to be able to tell them apart at all. But as soon as I gave you color, you'd be like, wow, that one's bright blue. Yeah, that's the male. Yep. So, once again, peacocks and birds of paradise. Mm -hmm. The lack of sexual dimorphism is such a weird feature. That's always a feature that stands out to me whenever you find social animals, and then there's no sexual dimorphism, just because it's so common among mammals for social animals to have some aspect of that. And so it's always weird when it's not there. 
Another thing that makes them weird animals. Or that it's there in a way we can't yes. see. Yes. Which uh, I, I favor is a very likely suggestion. Speaking of their social lives. Oh, quills. Quills can quill, be. Right? Ooh, quills, yeah, ooh. feather. Like, oh, okay, yeah. All sorts I'm on board. Of stuff. I'm on board. That's, once again, <laughs> I will read your fan fiction. Read my fan fiction. <laughs> Fanfiction.net slash common sense. No, I'm kidding. We don't have anything. <laughs> Speaking of social lives, this is another thing that gets a lot of attention in from Ceratopsian researchers is this question of how were they living? One of the most common depictions of Ceratopsians is them as herd animals. Mm-hmm. They do move in herds like bison. Yes. This is supported by the fact, as I mentioned before, that Lots and lots of ceratopsians are known from lots and lots of individual specimens in the same place. These are often called bone beds. They typically represent mass death assemblages. Hundreds of individuals died in the same place around the same time, maybe for the same reason. There are 20 of these in Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta alone. Wow. They are known all across North America. Some of them have multiple ages of individuals in them, adults and juveniles. Which is always a good indication that they were traveling together. Protoceratops is known, as I mentioned, from communal nesting sites. I love that so much. So there are, there does seem to be the suggestion that these animals were living in family groups, living in big herds, and you could be, would be forgiven for imagining them like, well, I say like bison, but think bison, pre-colonial bison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and indeed, pre-human bison. Thousands and thousands Aww. across the plains. Oh, oh, not the grasslands, because they didn't have grasslands, but all that place. Up and down the shores, the western interior seaway. But there are some challenges to this. For example, it has been pointed out that you can get bodies gathering where the living things did not. So flooding, for example, mm-hmm. could wash a bunch of bodies to the same place. It's also notable that we get mass death assemblages today, typically during things like drought. And what often happens is that the mass death happens where the water is. Uh, yeah, yeah, good point. Hundreds of animals will come together by the waterhole, not because they live together or alongside each other, but because that's where the only source of water is, and it's not enough, and so they uh, die of thirst and end up accumulating. Well, it's uh, these are both pointing out that, like, if in the future aliens found graveyards and were like, wow, humans lived in massive groups and all of these must have died at the same time. (laughs) But even with those challenges, it's still considered very likely that a lot of ceratopsians were in fact living in big groups, living in herds like mammals do today, like big bovids and stuff Mm -hmm. do today. But there's also variation. Triceratops is known from more than 50 individual specimens Almost exclusively by themselves. Huh. The only example, that, at least that I know of, of an assemblage of Triceratops came from a 2014 study of three juveniles buried together in Montana. Interesting. Which has been suggested that maybe Triceratops was solitary. Yeah. That different Ceratopsians, like Triceratops was more like rhinos than it was like wildebeest. Mm Mm-hmm. And since the juveniles were found together, maybe with the young hung out together and the adults didn't. Interestingly, very similar story for Psittacosaurus. Hundreds of individuals, almost always single adults. Except for 
it, assuming that my reference is totally up to date, one bone bed of juveniles and at least one example of a nest with an adult and young ones. So it unsurprisingly might be that they differed. One, well, if you look at today's big herbivores, you have the spectrum of like rhinos who are aggressively solitary. Uh, moose, as far as I know, don't, at least I don't typically see things of them moving in groups. It's usually, oh yeah, there's a moose typically walking down the streets when you, a moose. And then you have like elephants where it's the females and young yep. boys play alone. And then you have wildebeest and bison where <laughs> we are biomass we are on legion. industrial <laughs> scale. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it makes sense that you could have triceratops where maybe once you're an adult, all right, you're big and tough, go hang out alone. Uh, and then others are, everyone stays together all the time. And that's cool. That actually, with the variety of frills, it would be weird if there wasn't a variety in the other behaviors. Oh, yeah. And it's, we are talking about dozens of known species over millions of years it's not at all surprising that they would have differing like <laughs> They're all weird in comparison to each other. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and speaking of young versus adults, another topic that has received lots of attention is ceratopsian ontogeny. Yep. That is to say, how they changed as they grew. There are some excellent examples, especially because they're often preserved in big groups, and the most famous feature of their ontogeny is how their frills and horns change. Protoceratops, I mentioned before, the frills as they get bigger seem to get bigger, wider, flashier. This change is also well documented in Triceratops. In detail, baby Triceratops frills are small. They have what, are, what have been referred to as scalloped margins, mm -hmm. sort of uneven margins. And then as they grow, the frills become more rounded and wavy on the edges until when they get to adults, they're nearly smooth. The nose horns start small, and they get proportionally bigger as they grow, and the nasal bones fuse together. The eye horns, the brow horns, start out as little stubs, then straighten out a bit, then they curve upwards and back, then they straighten out again as they get older, and then curve forwards. Yeah. Like the horn changes direction over the course of the growth of a baby, of a triceratops. That's probably my favorite feature of ceratopsian ontogeny is that, like, that I could give you a horn from different ages and they'd look like they came from different animals. Yes. That's really interesting. The bone isn't just growing and being added to, it's reshaping as they grow, which is something we know a lot of dinosaurs did in various aspects. Ontogeny has received a lot of attention among ceratopsians because it can be a huge pain in the neck. Yeah. Ontogeny, the changes between juveniles and adults, can be very confusing. <laughs> and there have been lots of studies and discussions and debates about where we draw the line between variation within a species versus ontogeny change as they grow up versus different species. Yeah, remember how I said if I gave you a horn from each age, you might think it was a different animal? <laughs> yup, and indeed we have. <laughs> a lot of species differences among ceratopsians are using horns and frills and stuff, which the juveniles don't always have, which means juveniles are much harder to identify. It means you could easily mistake a old and young ceratopsian for being two different species. 
And what that means I have to talk about Triceratops and Taurosaurus. Hey! This was a proposal from a, n- a number of years ago, uh, mainly by Horner and Scanella, who proposed this idea that these two ceratopsians, Triceratops and Taurosaurus, were actually different ages of the same animals. That Taurosaurus was not its own species, but a adult, full-grown Triceratops. Their argument was, number one, that they are they live at the same place at the same time, so you find them together, and that Taurosaurus sort of fits the growth curve of Triceratops. Like, they, their argument was that it fits on the end of the growth curve. Yeah, if you were to graph out the, the trends we see in Triceratops as it grows, and then continue that graph into empty space, Taurosaurus actually fits pretty close to where that line would be. And indeed, that's what they did. Yeah. <laughs> they made the diagrams that did exactly that. However, this has been argued pretty firmly against by other people. Uh, slightly aggressively at times. <laughs> slightly aggressively. Who have argued, uh, first, that there does appear to be overlap in the maturity stages between different specimens of the two species. That there seems to be specimens from both that should be the same age, but look like Triceratops and Taurosaurus. Yup. That there are other differences in the skull shapes and features that aren't accounted for by maturity. And that while there is overlap in some places, the features that are supposed to be go from Triceratops to Taurosaurus, we don't seem to find intermediates. There are gaps. Yes. Where you should see this feature becoming the next one, but we don't see that. Uh, there is a Triceratopsian named Nidoceratops, which was suggested as an intermediate, but others have argued against it. This idea of mistakenly identifying ages of a dinosaur as different species, we have discussed before. It's happened in Pachycephalosaurs. There's the whole Nanotyrannus thing going on. In some cases, it seems to be supported. Yes. I've heard lots of support for things like Dracorex being a juvenile of Stygimoloch and or Pachycephalosaurus. A lot of paleontologists are seem fairly convinced that Nanotyrannus is in fact a juvenile Tyrannosaurus. Mm-hmm. This is one that doesn't seem to have held up quite as well. Yes. But it is something that it's great to have had a bunch of studies on it because it tells us what to be on the lookout for. Well, and it's something that, yeah, we should check it out. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, if I have a dinosaur, you know, if, if I have a, a dinosaur with a bunch of horns at this size and I have a dinosaur with a bunch of horns at a slightly bigger size and they both live the same place at the same time, well, let's make sure they're not related. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> then we have less dinosaurs than we thought we did. Yeah, like that's a, that's a, a thing you should check for Kind of just in general when you have a situation. Just a good idea. Yeah, because it seems that that has happened before. So it makes sense to ask the question. It just doesn't seem like the evidence has been as solid here as it may have been in those other situations. Indeed, indeed. And finally, one last note on Ceratopsians. Speaking of controversies, <laughs> I want to make mention of the posture of Triceratops. Because this is one of the... So I went into this not expecting the answer that I got. <laughs> Over the years, there has been this big question of how Triceratops held its legs. If you go way back to early days, right, early 1900s and such, reconstructions of Triceratops showed it with these straight back legs, but sprawling front legs. Mm -hmm. Which is odd, because most dinosaurs, a feature of dinosaurs, is that they held their legs parasagitally, which means underneath the body, like mammals do. Beneath the weight. So... Elephant, not crocodile. 
pillar-like legs under the body, or, you know, even if you're not a pillar animal, under the body as opposed to sprawling. But Triceratops was reconstructed with underbody legs in the back and sprawling in the front. And the argument here, the, the sort of justification from early paleontologists, is that that's the way the arm bones articulate. Yeah. That with the humerus, the upper arm bone, in some cases, almost horizontal. They stick out like that. But as time has gone on, there have been more people who have reconstructed them with straighter legs. In some cases, uh, this also involves reimagining the articulations of the shoulder blade and the ribs. There have also been suggestions that uh, footprints form evidence that they were walking with their feet mostly underneath the body. Some show the front legs, uh, have the front legs slightly bent, but functionally working underneath the body. When I read, I went into this, I said, I'm going to have to mention this, it'll be good. I expected the story to be, here's what they used to think, here's what we know now. Yeah. That's not what it is. People still argue about this. We still don't fully know how those front arm bones were held. Yeah. Apparently this is a thing that is still kind of controversial and mysterious with Triceratops specifically. And it's... It's not to say that there aren't animals who have oddly positioned limbs, even within their group. Uh, you know, so there are mammals that have, you know, that, that classic bulldog stance that oh, yeah. their elbows do kind of kick out and stand in a weird way. And you could even argue that, well, Triceratops has a giant head and it's probably eating low-growing mm-hmm. plants. Maybe it was handy. Yeah, if I'm doing a lot of stuff with that part of my body, I might need a different function for those legs. Also helps you get up under the T-Rex. Yeah. Do a push-up. <laughs> but it's super weird that for a group that's so seemingly so well-known, we haven't been able to clean up that answer a bit or clean up that mystery. Yeah, well, for me, it's like I think of the history of dinosaur reconstruction in museums and in artwork. It's like, all right, the, the, they used to be depicted dragging their tails. All right, well, we know they didn't do that anymore. Uh, they used to stand upright. Well, no, we fixed that. Now they, they stand like this. These used to be in swamps. Oh, no, no, no. We we moved on from mm-hmm. that. Triceratops used to be depicted like this. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's been a hundred years and we're still kind of arguing about it. Which... <laughs> Science is so much fun. These are weird animals. <laughs> Very th- strange animals. I think that's the thing that always stands out to me the most about Ceratopsians is they are one of, as we mentioned, one of the most popular dinosaurs. Iconic. Like, so super iconic. Like, ask a person on the street to name a dinosaur, and Triceratops will be one of your most frequently yep. answered animals. They're very well known as far as like, fossil record goes. Like, we have bunches of them. Oh, yeah. They were successful, and they were diverse. And what always stands out to me is they are so bizarrely weird uh, like across the board, there are questions we have about them that it seems like we shouldn't have considering how well we know them and how popular they are. So how much research they're getting. And yet still, they're weird. We don't quite get it. <laughs> and there's big gaps in our and the answers that we'd like to have, which is fantastic. It's, it's, fan, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Listeners, I hope that you've had as much fun learning about Ceratopsians as I did. Hopefully Will did, too. I did, too. No, I learned tons. Very cool group of animals. Surely there will be more. This is one of those groups of animals that it would not surprise me if next week I see an article 
a news article that I go, oh, that would have been really cool. Yep, 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 yep. In fact, I saw an article that recently came out about sexual dimorphism <laughs> related to dinosaurs. It's happening all the time, but we will wrap it up there for the time being. But wait, <gasps> there's more. Indeed we do. We have a patron question. Oh boy. We've had these, I think, just about every episode for the last little bit. We have had quite a bunch. And for anyone who's just now joining us, if you join our Patreon, if you patron with us at a certain level, you can ask us questions that we answer on the podcast like so. Our question for today is from Serpentine? Serpentine. Is from Serpentine, and they ask, how do we know so much about the structure of pterosaur wings with all those layers and muscles, etc.? That seems like an awful lot of detailed soft tissue for a fossil. It sure does. Yes, it does. And that's because pterosaurs are awesome. Yeah. So this question, uh, uh, likely inspired by our discussion of pterosaurs in episode 79. Yes, indeed. We talked about how we know quite a bit about the structure of pterosaur wings. And the answer to how we know that is because there are some mind-blowingly well-preserved pterosaurs. I did a little bit of extra digging, and some examples of specimens that have been used for this include Jeholopterus from China, Rampharynchus from the Solenhofen in Germany, Woo! and a specimen in Brazil, which was unnamed at least in 1989 when that paper was written. All preserved in, you know, the Solenhofen is that very famous Lagerstaten wet, fine sediments. The Brazilian one was preserved in a concretion, so a hard chunk of, of sediment that held the fossil within it and protected it. And those studies have been able to identify... I did not read this deep when I did the pterosaur episode, so this is more pterosaur content that I'm excited to bring you. At least, in some cases, five distinct layers of skin. A epidermis, a subdermis, the actinofibrils that, that help with the structure, muscle layers, like skin muscle layers... In a number of these cases, they're even citing the thickness of each layer <laughs> down to micrometers, micrometers, internal structure of muscle striation, the paths and vesicles where blood vessels would have gone through. So going through these layers and going, this is where the actinofibrils were. This is the kind of muscle we had here. This is the vascularized layer. This is where the pycnofibers would have sat in. At the end of the day, all you need to learn about five fine detail is often a really good fossil. Yep. And a lot of pterosaur stuff is marine fossils. Yes, it and is. And marine stuff is very often much better for fossilizing these kind of details. You get a lot of excellent fossils. And just like bone and teeth can preserve really fine details under the right conditions... If you get soft tissue preserved and it's good condition, you can often see microscopic structures just as well as macroscopic structures. Yes. So to answer your question there, Serpentine, how do we know so much? Because sometimes, every now and then, the fossil record is very, very kind. Yeah, it's the same reason we can say that certain cephalopods did have ink sacs. Yes. <laughs> if, if the preservation's nice, so is the info you can get from it. So... Oh, boy. Ask me more pterosaur questions, everybody. The pterosaur episode was only like two hours of discussion. Nah. I, I got more in me. Yeah, we barely scratched the surface. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for that patron question. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to the people who requested this episode. 
As always, we will have a blog post that goes up on our blog with pictures and links and more information. As a reminder, we are doing extra cool stuff. We've got live chats going on. We've got extra content being released. Keep an eye on our social media if you want to be involved in all those things. We've got our live chat about paleopathology that should be coming up shortly after this episode goes up. Listen to the last two. Check out our store for merch. It is, all things considered, a pretty exciting time for us. Yeah. we got a lot going on. We've been doing a lot of cool things. <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. Stay tuned for episode 88 coming up in the near future. And until then, if you ha- if there's more you want to hear about, more subjects, more questions, let us know. Patrons, send us questions for us to answer on the podcast. Everyone send us topic suggestions that we can base our future episodes around. And everyone stay safe and healthy and keep listening. Let us know your thoughts, your questions, your things. I'm repeating myself now. Yep. So I'm <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Take care out there. Bye. <laughs>